Good morning. Good morning. I think Wendy, Wendy is muted. There we go. Oh, yeah, that was weird. So I was still seeing my intro while you guys were talking. That's so strange. So welcome to another episode of Environmental Social Justice, little technical delays that we just had here. And today we have a special guest. We have Gerard Mayer. He is an architect and um, an urban design specialist. And what we're going to talk about today is how we are kind of messing up how we design our cities. So welcome to the show, Gerard. Thank you. And yes, um, uh, to follow up on that, you know, I actually was trained as an architect in Vienna and I never wanted to be anything other than an architect. And I came to the US uh, on a Fulbright scholarship in sustainable design because at the time we were still sort of like neck to neck leading with the rest of the world. That was the time when Reagan became president. And I realized very quickly that the focus here is not so much on needs to not so much be on individual buildings, but it needs to be on the urban fabric that holds it together. And I, I do think in summary that we have just we have such trouble environmentally and many other problems with our cities because we're just building the wrong city. And yeah. uh, Paul Krugman was just writing an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago how he was in Europe and how he realized that in general he thinks the US is decades behind. And I can second that. I think in terms of urban design, we are definitely decades behind. We sort of like disconnected from the rest of the world in the late 80s. And ever since the rest of the world has returned to a positive placemaking agenda, their environmental trajectory is trending upwards. They're getting better and better. And we are not. And, you know, yeah. in comparison, our cities are six, eight, nine times as bad as a typical European city. And some Asian cities that have even higher densities are even better. So we are not in the right trajectory at all. So when you say that we're behind, in what regard do you mean that? Well, Paul Krugman has a very generic, uh, the article says very generically that he feels that we are not in a contemporary nation anymore when he comes back to the US. And I, I must say I have in some ways shared that. That's not always the case in terms of software and, and applications and, and digital technology. We are definitely on the leading edge. But in terms of our urban environment, in terms of our infrastructure, in terms of how the places feel, they feel like they are from a bygone time here. And uh, the reason for that is that sort of like the whole rest of the world built cities on a very similar basis. You know, 60 years ago, the whole world built basically American cities because we won the war and we were the big example, the shining example all over the place and everybody wanted to imitate us. And the Europeans have sort of observed that and observed them in comparison with the old cities that they had and sort of like in the 80s decided that's not working out. That's absolutely not going to work out. You know, it was the time when there was the Club of Rome, the first environmental document, you know, and then we had an event here, the Cuyahoga River was on fire and the Europeans decided that the urban fabric is to blame for that. And they turned around and went in another direction and they all picked it up over there. And we refused that to do that because, you know, American men drive big trucks, you know, at the time Reagan, we are who we are, you know, we have a big carbon footprint, we're proud of it. And we never really lost that. And it's not just a little tweaking on the edges that we need to do. I think we need to change up the basic paradigm, the underlying paradigm by which we operate. And in the end, what that means is by doing so, it'll help solve many other problems. It'll, it'll help solve people accept our cities better. It'll help the quality of life for everybody. It'll lower our carbon footprint and it'll, it'll help our housing crisis. 
You know, when you brought up the carbon footprint, just to clarify, when you and I spoke, we, our cities have six to eight times more CO2 than European cities. And what exactly are we doing? Is it just the cars? Is it the fact we're wasteful, consuming too much? Is there anything we can pinpoint that to? Well, I mean, it's mostly when you, when you look at the state of California, they put out a chart what causes and uh, the carbon footprint. There's two big slices of the pie that we rarely talk about. The first one is transportation. That means we drive for everything all the time, by yeah. far. And we don't talk about that, right? I mean, we have the mayor of LA celebrating, you know, an environmental event where he has little black balls in some uh, uh, water reservoir that water doesn't evaporate. Not a bad thing, right? But it's not really focused on what ne what needs to be done. What needs to be done is we need to drive less and urgently. And the second big chunk is that we eat too much meat. You know, uh, cow and, and bovine outgassing is definitely a, a high level problem. So if we ate less meat and if we drove fewer cars, we'd make a big thing. Very true. And I've, I've also read that um, feeding cows grain like corn is what primarily produces that methane. It's just not natural. You know, they were never meant to eat corn. They're meant to eat grass. They were meant to graze, you know, and that's, yeah. that's what they should do. That's what they should do. And also, yeah, we do consume too much. I mean, growing up and Joel's a vegetarian, so he hasn't touched meat in decades. But growing up, meat was like a, a special thing. Having steak was a rarity. It wasn't an everyday thing. And we've gotten to the point where people want that every single day. Well, you know, there's a similarity with that to how other countries deal with meat. It's not like other countries don't like meat. Italians love their meat, but they don't eat it every day. They eat small portions and yes. they really cherish it and make it really good when they when they do it. You know, we eat what's the major meat consumption in the U.S. It's like the lowest common denominator is burgers. Right. I don't even want to eat that. That's not really quality meat that that's just, you know, that's sort of like a, a, a commercial product that you have every day. But I don't think there's anything wrong with once a month having a really good steak somewhere. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, moderation. And, and the same yeah. thing is true with cars, by the way. It's not like when we talk about uh, changing our cities, it's an either or proposition often. You know, people say, well, we can't live without our cars. Well, you shouldn't. For some reasons, cars are probably or definitely the best um, mode of transportation uh, available. And every European city has cars available. They're not just used for everything all the time. Right. Yeah, we need to do more walking and cycling. So speaking of like, the, you know, urban design, and how we've kind of lost touch with what makes sense and what works. We've gone for ease of use. I get it. Um, most of the U.S. is very sprawled out. We drive everywhere. I know people that won't even drive. You know, I've met people at a restaurant where their distance was closer than mine. I walked. They drove. And um, I was like, you spent more time looking for parking than it would have taken you to walk. Yes. Like, yeah. They just don't want. So how do, how do we fix this other than talking about it? What can we actively do to change? Well, you know, when you make small modifications to the existing urban footprint, that is sort of like having an organ transplanted into your body and your body will reject it. So we need to take care that that all the all the, the, the conditions around that are taken care of and hopefully make a big enough impact that it can stick. So yeah. these little tiny, you know, when we build bike lanes, we built them for a little while and then they stop. Well, and then people say, well, bike lanes are not accepted. Well, what do I do with a bike lane that's six, that's six blocks long and then afterwards I die? Or it's not protected. I mean, I um, I didn't realize just how politically charged bike lanes were oh, yeah. um, because people want their parking spots. Well, I mean, bike lanes take space away from the cars. 
And yeah. uh, it's a statistic that uh, Donald Shoup, you know, it, it's been going around in, in literature for a long time. How much land is used for our transportation mechanisms in LA in, in comparison to other cities? And by the way, other cities, the ideal soft sweet spot, sort of like for uh, area used for transportation is about 20 to 25 percent. In LA, okay. there's sort of like there's always a debate, but it's approaching sort of like uh, a consensus that it is around two thirds of our land area is used for cars. Yeah. So imagine yeah. that two thirds of the land area needs to be maintained with taxes that are gained from the one third of the land area. And that one third of the land area is not highly used. It's usually mostly one story boxes and warehouses. So no wonder we can't maintain our roads. We have too many roads and we don't have enough money coming in. If you compare that with Boston, for instance, where you are from, they are approaching sort of like the, the 20, 25% uh, of road space. And that works. Well, they also rent out space. I mean, it's funny because like I used to, I was born and raised on the East Coast. And so I never even owned a car until I moved out to California because here you absolutely had to have one to get anywhere. Um, so it's like, it was funny, like, so my mindset had to change completely to view a car as being more along the lines of a luxury item to a necessity. And I yeah. think that's kind of the biggest thing, the biggest challenge between, you know, a city such as Boston or Los Angeles, where here it actually is a necessity. Like you said, LA is what is a massive city made up of a bunch of small cities. That's yeah. the way I've always described it. And so... Yeah it's so it's like how do you get around without a car so everybody has to have a car but then it becomes you know to try to get to the grocery store to try to get anywhere the distance you have to go unless you're living in certain walkable or more convenient locations where you can get somewhere without a car you don't have a choice so it's mm -hmm. like how do we fix that problem that's been going that's been there for decades well, there is access to of, the, of the 15 minute city, you know, that everything that you need should be within a 15 minute uh, uh, commute from, from your home. And I think if you thought about that, you know, LA, you cannot change the entire city at once. I mean, we cannot hope to make an impact big enough that transforms the entire city. So we have to sort of resign ourselves that much of LA will remain the way it is for a, quite a while. But where we make an impact, we should not dilute it over all areas equally, but we should we should concentrate it around those areas that have the best chance to succeed. And those are the small nodes around each existing transit station. We have a transit network and we actually have fairly decent trains, just not many. And we have about 104 stations on the and still building. I mean, the metro is still building, the, the west side extension is going on. There's a couple of lines that will, will add transit stations. I calculated once, if you took every one of these transit station areas and you just drew a half mile circle around each station, you put a hundred acre park, just as a math experiment, a hundred acre park in each one of those five mile circles. And you built the city like Vienna, Berlin, Budapest, you know, sort of like the medium density European cities, not, not Paris and not Barcelona. And then you took another half mile circle around it and made it a bike friendly ring, sort of like Brooklyn. In those 104 station areas, you will accommodate 15 million people. That's way more people than are here. So we will solve all our problems just in those tiny areas if we just built a different urban fabric. Oh, wow. And we would have probably 90 new parks, 100 acre parks. That's the difference between sprawling suburbia and between what's called walkable compact cities. But then how would that work for 
people who are commuting to work because if there's still not a solid infrastructure because right now the way and correct me if i'm wrong but i've always worked under the impression that the la metro system is kind of like there's the main thing in the middle and then it shoots out yeah. so say you're in you live in santa monica or you live in the west side but you work in beverly hills the time it's going to take to get from santa monica using public transportation so you're you're talking about using a bus to a rail system to a, then transferring to another rail system then to a bus you could have driven and parked that's going to be the biggest challenge for people to get over is that how are we going to connect all these small cities in a way that makes sense what you're doing now is you're trying to solve the whole area that's what i said we, we cannot do and you are correct i mean most people will still need to commute the way they're commuting now probably by car but some people, the ones that live, there will be a different LA emerging on that transit backbone. And by the way, the transit backbone is growing. The more it grows, the more we should grow these nodes where people can live, right? And they will become desirable nodes. Not everybody wants to be uh, dependent on an automobile all the time. You know, you can just see the city evolving to a framework of centers, you know, that are connected with transit. And those people who live in those centers will not have cars. And then you need to sort of like, deal with the transition to the rest of the normal auto-dependent LA. And maybe you have sort of like a ring of parking facilities, each one of those nodes, you know, where you have a bunch of shared cars and you go there and get a car for those days when you need to drive. But it would be a concentrated demonstration of how a different world could live. And I would imagine, I predict that world would be very desirable. You know, I'm, I'm part of an initiative right now, which you also should, by the way, talk to at some point called the Livable Communities Initiative. Okay. The Liberal Communities Initiative is a friend of mine. She said, you know, what do we really need to do, Gerhard, to solve this housing problem? And I said, stop solving it for the poor people. Find a better city that your neighbors in Hancock Park would like to move into. And that's what it is. It's sort of like an idea of finding a way to build a city that everybody desires. Once you have that, can you imagine the market forces that will rearrange themselves to provide that? If we just, pro if we just build public subsidized housing for poor people, you know, it's going to get more expensive and somebody will find a way to cut corners and you know the, the results yeah. will be smaller and smaller if we found a market-based way to provide something people actually like rather than object all the time it'd be a bonanza well it's funny because there are pockets of la that i do think are sort of structured like that minus the transportation aspect if you look at something like playa vista it's kind of a whole self-contained area where people a lot of people work there and a lot of people shop there, they, they party there, they go out to dinner, they entertain there. But again, it comes down to the affordability because that is definitely not an affordable area by for most standards. But so I, I can see how that model can work. I think you do touch on the biggest issue, which is making it affordable for people, yeah. which has yeah. always been a big concern for me about watching uh, what's happening. A little bit about affordability. So we just, uh, I, I just came back from a trip to Vienna that is a study trip for a larger excursion for California lawmakers in the fall to study a social housing model because Vienna provides a housing quality that is light years ahead of what we do for about half the price of what we build. And they build it all with unionized labor. And the study trip will sort of like explore how that happens. And I can tell you sort of like the cornerstones of what we have found in our first trip. First of all, the city of Vienna controls the land. So there's no land speculation. They own a lot of land. They have a fund to own public land and they make it available for housing construction. When they build housing, they do not build it for the lowest income ranks. They build it for almost everybody. So that destigmatizes housing. Everybody wants that housing and you can no longer tell whether somebody is rich or poor 
you know, by the type, by the building that you that you look at. And actually, the mayor is very proud. He always says you cannot tell somebody's income level by where they come from in the city. And then he awards the projects. The, the, the projects are built with private industry with for-profit models, but the profit is limited. The risk is almost zero for the developers. The profit is limited, so nobody can make more profit by cutting corners. And they award, so it's a very safe, it's a very safe way of moving forward and making money. But the way you get the projects is you have to compete for those projects and you have to compete by how much you can provide for the general public. Yeah. So there's a mechanism that is actually optimizing for quality every step of the way, rather than our mechanism that's optimizing for cutting corners, the lowest common denominator. And they are operating now from a, from a place of housing abundance, not housing need. When you operate from housing abundance, the private market that also exists there comes down in price because they no longer can charge what they want to. They come down to actually the levels of almost like the subsidized housing. Everybody operates at a profit. They all make money. And it, it for 12 out of 15 years, the city of Vienna, to a large part because of that, I think, has the highest quality of life. In oh, the city. Wow. Do you find that there's the same level of I guess bureaucracy is the best way to put it, involved <laughs> that we would face here to do something like that. I think there is actually much less bureaucracy. You know, we have, a, I'm a practicing architect and I've built a lot of buildings in LA. You know, we have functions in the building process that they don't even know about over there. I mean, what does a political lobbyist do on a housing project? Why do we even have those? Why do we need to take project money and allocate that? What's an entitlement consultant? Why do we need an entitlement consultant who makes sure that the project gets through the city? There's a lot, I mean, and this land use attorney, they charge 650, 700 bucks an hour. Why do we even have that? Why do we need that? A lot of the money that we allocate to provide housing does not go to sticks and stones. You know, we like to beat up on contractors. If you look at the entire pie chart, only a third actually goes to construction and two thirds go to something else. And much of that something else they don't even know about in Vienna. That's crazy. I had no idea there were so many. I mean, Joel's the expert in real estate, so this was all new to me. I, I that one, that one, that those figures actually shocked me as well. Like, I mean, we all know that there's a bunch of red tape and there's all the people who can involve, decision makers, blah blah blah. But to hear it broken down to that level, it's kind of mind blowing that there's. It's wrong. <laughs> it should not be happening. But then well, how do you? As the state has recognized that, and that's why they're doing this study trip. This will be high-level politicians that are going over there. The state is really serious. The state has a lot of land, and they want to use it for housing. They're serious about they want to provide housing at scale. They really want to solve the housing crisis. And what my addition to that is, don't just solve it building more suburbia. Don't just and suburbia, by the way, consists out of sprawl and towers. Right. Neither yeah. one exists to a large extent in Vienna. They neither have much sprawl, nor do they have many towers. A, a functional city, a walkable, compact city, has streets and blocks, and they are five to six stories tall, and there's, there's parks in it, and the aggregate density is higher than New York City. Oh. It's Playa Vista. You're, you're completely describing Playa Vista. I, I think that. Playa Vista is a good example. I live actually next door to Playa Vista in Playa Vista will be getting a major upgrade that will take it out of its elitism a little bit in the course of the Olympic Games because Metro will build a dedicated busway down Jefferson to the beach. And I hope that that will not go away after the Olympics because Playa Vista is great, except you can't get to it. Yeah, yeah. it's very hard to get there. 
you're, you actually just touched on, I think, one of the biggest issues that we're always be impacting LX. I remember when they widened the 405, there was all yeah. the plans about like how many people would get rid of their car. And it was basically one in 10. Yeah, that was it. You know, so it's like, how do we change the psyche of people as well to understand that if you're in an area, maybe you don't need it to go to the grocery store. Maybe you don't need it to just walk up to the local corner market. So it's going to be, it's also a big issue about changing just the mentality of people, which is, that's really hard, as well as just the habits. Those are really difficult things to overcome. You know, these are the young people. Uh, it, the, the older people have sort of like, I mean, my parents wanted to drive in Austria for everything. You know, I mean, they're both uh, uh, past now, but they wanted to drive for everything. They totally believed in that model. Younger people, not so much. All my friends in Vienna and their kids, they don't have cars in Vienna. They rent one when they need one. Other than that, they, it, it's a bother to them. And you see that here too. You see younger people, you know, I'm in, in many of sort of the public meetings and I, I run and have been part of a couple of nonprofits. Young people are quite adamant that they don't want to be tied into this framework where they have to pay for a car and maintain it at a moment. Yeah. They don't want it. Nothing. And, and seniors don't necessarily want it all the time either. They love to have a walkable neighborhood, you know, where they can go to a grocery store or to a coffee shop. It's but just that comes down to accessibility of, of you know, having access for thing, for groceries, for your coffee shop, things yeah. to do within your walk within your walking radius yeah. is yeah. Um, what many cities don't have. In Europe, they do. Everything, there's a central area and then businesses and then houses around it. Um, well, that's what I'm saying. If you LA, don't spread it out everywhere. Make focused, concentrated improvements to prove a different model. So everybody else who lives next door then goes over there and says, I want that too in my neighborhood. Yeah. What also so, creates community, which I think is yeah. something else. Lacking. People, which is the biggest thing right there is to create a sense of community and a feeling of belonging and yeah. unity amongst your neighbors is like to actually know people is yeah would be a nice thing as well <laughs> that's yeah. so true i mean i have a good friend who left new york to move to spain and um she's also in in the interior design world does green design and everything's about community she met her neighbors she's she's met everybody in her neighborhood she just recently moved she got to know them there was a medieval parade last week that she just happened to stumble across that's community and we don't have that we've we've kind of crawled into our homes and isolated ourselves and that's kind of destroyed you know what we're all talking about that we need back well you know the, the destroying community was sort of like baked into the model a little bit when suburbia was invented because at the time there was a big fear of communism and the city had strong socialist uh, movements and suburbia was sort of like the premise that we no longer have common space. You know, we have all our own private little space and the roads are only there to connect us all. And there's even a saying by uh, Mr. Levy from Levytown that if you give every man a house that he can walk around, he won't become a communist. So that was intentional, I think, a little bit. That's, I never heard that. That's awful. <laughs> um, so um, since we are coming up to our, our half hour mark um, soon, what can we, because you, you and I have talked previously about California as the leader pretty much in everything with respect to the environment for the states. What can we do as the state of California or even the city of LA or the county of LA to lead this charge to scrap the old idea of the way we design cities and develop a new way of doing it? Well, I think we need to focus, concentrate our efforts on smaller areas and then plan with a community in mind. I mean, all the things we talked about here and not let developers drive the boat. The developers get to build it and they get to make money, but they do not get to drive the boat. 
that is the biggest difference, you know, between Vienna and us. They act in the interest of the public and the public appreciates it. And therefore, yeah. there's no resistance. There's no NIMBY movements, none of that, right? We have developed a sort of like strong arming everybody to put something into a community that the community will completely reject afterwards. That's what we need to turn around. I think that involves sort of like an activist government again. And if it's not the city, then it needs to be the state, although the city would be better. And concentrate the, uh, uh, concentrate it on a couple of smaller areas rather than spread it all over the city. And there is a difference between a linear way of planning and between a design-based circular way of planning that's called rapid urban prototyping, where you don't wait for years to figure out what you're doing and sort of test it against all eventualities, but you sort of like empathize with a problem, you try out a solution, you test the solution, you correct it, and then you do it again. It's sort of like a loop that is constantly improving rather than run everything through a gauntlet for five years and at the end whatever is left over you may implement and it may not even be valid anymore we need to shorten our processes yeah a it's lot like, of topics i could actually see of um, it just popped in my head but i think like uh, when you're looking at like la areas i actually think north hollywood probably has the closest model to something like this in that you do have the public transportation stop. You do have things which, it, you know, as that area grew and expanded, it started getting more of the, I know we mentioned high rises, which is not ideal, but those started coming in to allow for more people to live. Then you have the public transportation, you start having some more convenience aspects. So I could actually see that area starting to become more of the possibility to become that model because yeah. it's going to be hard to just do it from scratch. So if you have an area that's already kind of has part of that in place, I think you could then start creating this system. Yeah. Well, you know, LA was initially a railroad town. Yeah. Uh, it had the largest public transportation system in the United States, maybe in the world at the time. It was owned by Henry Huntington, and Henry Huntington used it to shuttle people to his real estate developments. And every single area around one of Henry Huntington's old transit station actually has the bones to become a really nice walkable neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And those are areas, you know, like Santa Monica and Huntington Beach, of course and uh, uh, Glendale, and uh, there's a bunch of them, right? That if we concentrate on those and then we merge them with the existing transit network, then I think we sort of like know which areas we should focus on. I want to give a shout out to Culver City, which has done a great job, I think, lately. And if you haven't been there, then I think you should. And, and the next area that I think is coming and has the public will to become really great is West Hollywood. They just don't have the train, but they're really lobbying desperately to get the train. Yeah. And yeah, I they think have a good transit yeah. shuttle that they use. But you know, Culver City is fantastic. You probably know Thomas Small. Um, he used to be in city well. fabulous guy and yeah. forward thinking. And I think he's got the uh, Culver City Forward is his organization now. They're doing amazing things, and yeah. we need to learn from those guys. And also, yeah. when you said about the trains and the transit that we had, we may need to have to think back to move forward. Yeah, I think so. And that's the lesson from Europe. They didn't invent a new way of building buildings. What they did is they went back to a timeless way. They abandoned the modern city and went back to the timeless way of building cities, but they did it with strikingly modern buildings. And that's how they are moving forward. So it's one step backwards to take three steps forward. And that's what we need to do. Yeah. So, what, so get on it, Jared. <laughs> I am working with Thomas with Culver City Forward. I had breakfast with him yesterday. I'm going to meet with him again tomorrow. Oh, and wonderful. I also met with Alex. And Alex, by the way, sends his regards and says he apologizes that he hasn't contacted you yet. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> I totally understand. But no, that's wonderful. And I love the fact because everyone, you know, my biggest 
complaint, for lack of a better term, is there's a lot of talking and not a lot of action. So yep. I'm always very pleased when I hear people with the action, which is what you're doing. And um, communities initiative would be a good uh, thing for you to look into. You might like that, what that is doing. Oh, OK, I'll definitely check that out. So um, Joel, do you have any closing questions, comments? No, I my only comment would be as if these are initiatives and plans are able to actually come together is to not lose the affordability for the people who have been there so they don't get pushed out. That's yeah. always been my that's one of my biggest concerns is what happens to people who've been there. Don't punish them because you're making it better. Completely agree. I mean, that's the that's the problem with gentrification here, that it also means simultaneously displacement. Gentrification is not a bad word because it means sort of like upgrading an area, but gentrification in combination with pushing everybody out who was there is a very bad word. Absolutely. No, it, it needs to all come together. And again, the community-based approach needs to actually happen. Yeah. And uh, not so much politicians or lobbyists. You know, there are cities like Compton that are making efforts to uh, uh, participate in this and South LA and the uh, uh, the whole gateway ring of cities, you know, heavily Hispanic cities there, they are getting the East Santa Ana branch. They are becoming interested, but they, they will, by the way, join the trip to Vienna too. And uh, there's a lot of interest to do something right. There's just so many mechanisms in our way. That's what we need to clear out. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly, mechanisms. <laughs> well, thank you, Gard. This has been a fabulous conversation, guys. Please check them out. Look into um, what you can do in your community to help. And we just need to kind of rethink the way we do things, rethink our cities. And uh, we'll talk to you guys later. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay.